and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a huge guest, someone I'm very excited to uh, well, I get to talk to about all this stuff because they are not only part of the very successful, very talented Radio Silence Film Collective, and, and half of the directing team that did the brand new number one film, Scream. That's right, the brand new Scream that's in theaters right now. He is also the guitar player from Link 80 and also a member of the hugely underrated Dolores. Matt Bettinelli Olpin is here on the show. And oh my gosh, is this a fun one. More on that in one second. But first, if you would like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turned at a punk podcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and normally guest booker extraordinaire, but I, I booked the show, well, I booked this episode myself, um, but thank you, Tristan, for all the other hard work you do, obviously, uh, and he will get the message to me. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at left for damien If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it and letting everyone you know know that we have this podcast here where we talk about punk and... and <laughs> Well, pretty much that's that's really what we do talk about. But then there's some other stuff thrown in there, too. You can also support the show by heading over to TurnedOutAPunk.com and grabbing a T-shirt. Thank you to everyone that already has picked up one of the shirts over there. We've got re-ups of some sizes that were sold out, and so they are back there. Thank you for picking those up. You can also support the show by heading over to Patreon.com slash TurnedOutAPunk and uh, checking out some of the bonus content that's over there. And like video episodes of some of the shows, there's also footnotes, there's lost episodes and, and all sorts of fun stuff. And thank you. Thank you to everyone that does do that. It is very much appreciated. Um, it helps keep the show going. It really does keep the lights on around this place uh, these days. So thank you very much for doing that. Uh, you can also support the show by subscribing to it and rating it on your platform of Choice. I play in a band. We are called Fucked Up. We will be going on tour to uh, the west coast of the United States. You can find out tour dates at fuckedup.cc. We've got a bunch of records, new ones, and reissues. You can find out more information there. And hopefully I'll see you on the road and we'll be able to chat and talk about music because that's what I love to do. And uh, I also love to eat fast food and I cannot wait to be eating fast food on the road again. There's a lot of a lot of cool vegan options I've seen on the internet that we don't have up here in Canada. So I'm very excited to try them when I get down there. Woo. This is what I'm most excited about, but going back on tour, I like playing shows. I like, you know, the music side of things, but an excuse to have to eat junk food. Oh, well, you don't get that too often. Anyway, <laughs> that is coming up. We also be, will be going to England. Lots more tour dates. that are going to be announced in the near future. Knock on wood. Hopefully see you soon. All right, on to today's show. Today on the show, as I said off the top, Matt Bettinelli Olpin is here. Matt is someone that, uh, well, let's face it, this is the kind of dream guest for this podcast. Of course, like everyone else that grew up with Scream, I was very excited to hear that there was going to be a new remake and it was going to be coming from the team that, you know, this Radio Silence uh, group that Matt is a part of have produced some very, very memorable and very, very awesome films in the last few years. So I was excited to see 
what they would do was scream. Still have not had a chance to see it because it's in the theaters. And, uh, you know, I got kids and lockdown and all sorts of stuff. But I am, I'm desperate to see this film. So I was very excited when this thing got announced. I had no idea, no idea about Matt's past. And then, you know, saw some posts about the soundtrack that was coming out. Saw Matt make some, um, some posts about some of the songs that were on that thing. Looked into it, like really just scratched the surface a little bit. And it revealed, oh my gosh, Matt was in Link 80. And Link 80 is a band that prior to doing this podcast, I, I really did not contextualize them properly. And through doing this podcast and talking to past guests that have come on here and realizing how foundational and important they were for a whole other generation of kids, um, I've always wanted to talk to someone from this band. And so here we are. The guy who's directing the new Scream movie is also from the band Link 80. God, I love punk. Like, this is it. This is why we do this show, to find out this sort of stuff. And this is a really fun conversation. Matt goes deep. Uh, yeah, we got we got a lot of fun stuff to get to in uh, this episode. I do have a couple notes before I let you listen to it. Um, oh, yeah, it's Johan's face. You know, I always say Jonah's face because I like to throw that at Jonah from Fucked Up. Johan's face. It, it'll make sense in the in the context of the show. Uh, and I think that's really the only note I have. It's probably something else I should have put in here. But anyway, uh, I'm not going to ramble on. This is a really good one. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited for you to hear it. Rest in peace, Nick. Rest in peace, Sammy. And, um, oh, and I, I guess I also should warn you, there is some discussion of abuse and, um, and an incident that was very well documented in the 90s involving uh, accusations of sexual abuse in the Bay Area and, and very, in the punk scene. In the punk scene. It was documented in a song. And we, anyway, we talk about it, but I just want to warn you in advance so it doesn't come out of nowhere and hit you with this thing that there are some conversations about abuse in this episode. Uh, but that's it. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Uh, see that new movie, Scream, you know? And let me let me know. <laughs> Can't wait to see it. I'm very very excited to see this movie. And uh, th- that is it. Uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy Matt Bettinelli Olpin on Turned Out a Punk. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, as I was just uh, actually, we didn't even really get to talking about it yet. We were mainly caught up talking about other stuff. But uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of all your film work. But I was slipping because I had no idea about the Link Eighty connection until very recently. And Link Eighty is a band that I, through doing this podcast, I've really appreciated your importance in that world. So you are really truly a Bo Jackson on this podcast. Thank you for coming here today. <laughs> Well, thank you. That's a real honor. I've never heard that. Um, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Why should that be reserved for the jocks? You know, like we can have Bo that's Jackson's right. too, you know? <laughs> um, that's right. But I got to start off the way they all start off, which is, Matt, how did you get into punk? To remember the first time you ever came across the genre? You know, it's a good question. I I have like kind of a, a bunch of memories of early times. And I think the, the I think it's a little bit of a progression. I think so my, my first girlfriend in high school, when I was 15, maybe she, she was really into punk and her older sister was a part of the whole Gilman Berkeley scene, like the originating era of it. 
Mm -hmm. And so she always had like a bunch of seven inches around and she was really into Green Day, who at the time were, it was before Dookie. And so she was really into all of that. And she kind of started bringing me into that world a little bit. And that was like my beginning kind of step into it. And then at the same time, I met uh, Joey, who's in Link 80, the drummer. And he, before we were in a band, he gave me a tape that was a Rancid's album had just come out. I think it was Rancid's album, first album and Minor Threat. It was a, you know, A side, B side kind of homemade mixtape thing. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, oh shit, this is the best thing I've ever heard. You know, I kind of, everything changed. You know, before that I was really into like Metallica. Like when I started high school, it was, you know, it was Metallica all the time. I think freshman year of high school was strictly Metallica. Well, it's interesting to think about the Bay as having those twin kind of underground currents going that are so huge in the nineties, right? Like that metal scene. And then of course the punk scene. It's the thing. I mean, I, you know, I think about it a lot where I, all my, all my favorite bands were local bands, even Mm -hmm. though they're like gigantic bands, (laughs) like Metallica and stuff. Um, But yeah, it is, it is funny how those two scenes kind of both sprung up there. Yeah. And both are very kind of like ultimately DIY kind of scenes in their own way. Yeah. And I think they fed off each other a lot too, Mm -hmm. you know, like it was a little too early for me, but the whole like thrash scene, I think there was a lot of, you know, punk crossover in all of that. And like, you know, when you listen to early Metallica too, I mean, it's, it's pretty punk rock. (laughs) Like, yeah. Yeah. You can tell they definitely were influenced by discharge and like they're hearing GBH and stuff like that. Um, 100%. So where'd you kind of go from like, you know, these sort of twin influences coming on you? Like, what was the first shows you went to? Like, you know, even before the punk stuff? I, well, my first show ever, ever, ever was Young MC and Millie Vanilli. That's what a double bill. <laughs> what a double bill. Uh, I was, I was, uh, and I'm not just saying this in hindsight, but I mean, I was like, I loved Young MC. I wasn't yeah. really, in, I didn't care about Millie Vanilli, <laughs> but a friend's my, I had two friends who were twins and their mom worked at a, she was a DJ. And so she got us tickets and she was like, we can go see young MC. She's also the first person who gave us uh, beastie boys when license to ill, like she got like a pre-copy of license to ill when we were, you know, seven or eight, which was another kind of life altering musical moment for us. Oh yeah. But she took us. Yeah. So she took us to young MC and Millie Vanilli. And then I think my first real show, God, Oh my God. I don't even remember. I mean, I know the first time I went to Gilman, was joey just took me on a friday you know i don't even remember who i saw but it was like it was as much to go see the bands as it was to go come and hang out at this place so but that is this this is pre-green day kind of exploding right like this is pre everything kind of being focused on that area yeah this is this is like 93 94 Mm -hmm. it's like right before i mean green day was huge in the bay area you know i mean they were kerplunk and slappy hours all that like those all the lookout albums were gigantic um and my girlfriend who I was talking about earlier she her and I went to the dookie release party at slims in San Francisco and it's really there's a, there's a funny tangent but so we you know we get there it's all you know I don't know if you know what slims is it's a moderate moderate size club it's not yeah. like huge but it's not tiny kind of a legendary we, spot though oh yeah it's fantastic I mean I saw, I saw everybody there when I was younger and we worked our way up to the front and so we we're in the front and you know, like getting, I, I, I remember I had burns from leaning on the, the mic, you know, the amps the whole time, the, uh, whatever you call it. The wedges, the, I guess. You know, the, we call it the, the speakers. The monitors. To. Monitors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a minute. Uh, 
yeah, so I was leaning on the monitors. I got all bloody. And then, but I always remember that I got kicked in the face. Somebody, you know, stage diving kicked me in the face. And I, I remember getting a black eye and blah, blah, blah. And then it wasn't until like, I don't know, five, 10 years ago, once YouTube was a thing. And I was like, I wonder if that shows on video somewhere. And it's not really, but the Welcome to Paradise official live video yeah. from that show. And you can clear as day see me get kicked in the face. <laughs> <laughs> it is absolutely hilarious. Why is that not on your IMDb? That should be your first I know, credit. <laughs> I know. It should be. It's definitely the thing I'm most proud of. <laughs> it's it's funny though like you talked about them being huge in the bay area prior to exploding they're one of those bands where like with nirvana like people talk about how they never saw it coming but with green day it seems like you know obviously no one knew where it would go but it seems like everyone knew it was going to go somewhere yeah i mean my memory is definitely that like everybody i talked to they were the coolest band in town by yeah. far you know yeah. i mean i wore both of those tapes out definitely you know yeah like, who opened that show do you remember i'm sure i can find God, that online if uh, i'm you, oh uh dead milkman whoa dead milkman they were great um fuck, there was somebody else and i can't remember who and i'm so curious dead milkman were awesome and green day were awesome too and i remember so well they they and this just shows you where the world was at that time when it came to like punk and like mainstream and you know there was a bunch of pushback about Oh, local band making big, which obviously in hindsight is kind of whatever. Yeah. But but at the time it was a thing. And I remember they had they they brought on all of the local newspapers that had written about their big success with Dookie coming out and how they're gonna be a big deal. And they burned them all on stage. Wow. And, as like a as like a fuck you, we don't care. And I remember the security guards coming on stage and I was in the front row, obviously, so I could hear a lot of it. And they were basically like some version of your guys and our guys are going to meet out back if you fuck around anymore. <laughs> like, it was like, oh, all right. <laughs> you know, fast forward four months, they're the biggest band in the world. Yeah. I guess that was like, uh, you know, maybe a ritual, them burning those things with some sort of ceremony with everyone present that sealed the fate. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It was cool. I mean, I, you know, I was I mean, you know, I guess 15 or 16. I remember thinking it was the coolest thing ever. Yeah, it's wild how when you think about it, like going back to that, like, you know, Metallica, Rancid, Green, like, it's like most of the biggest rock bands were kind of like happening around the same, especially with Rancid yeah. and Green Day, they're all happening around the same time. Yeah, 100%. And then Jawbreaker was my other like favorite of that era. And they were also local. Yeah. It also always uh, amazed me that you guys did a Rat Patrol cover on the first Link 87 inch. Like, Whoa, deep cut. Where'd you hear that? Because that is a super deep cut. Even today, like it's impossible to hear that. That was on, I think one of Aaron Conipus. Unless we tapes. forget, yeah. It was on yeah. Unless We Forget. It was one of those, because he made all those mixtapes. And, you know, it's, I, I think this is probably true for everybody who got into punk rock in the early 90s. It became an obsession overnight. You know, it was like, I heard it on like a Friday and by Monday I was, what can I, I need to devour all of it, you know? Yeah. And so, and again, it was, I think I got really lucky. I think that scene was incredible. And so there, and there was already a history in there, you know, there's a Bay area music history that goes back obviously way, way back. Mm -hmm. And then just punk rock. It's like once Gilman kind of got going in like the 87, 88, 89 era, I, I just got obsessed with all of that. So I wanted to find all of the tapes, all of the seven inches, all of the bands I had heard of, and 
one of them was, I think it, I think it might've been my girlfriend's older sister who had that less, less we forget comp. And we were just looking for songs to cover. And that was one that kind of just jumped out at us. Honestly, it was like, Oh, that'd be fun. Like, this is great. They're, that's a fun, you know, song. Let's just cover it. That is just kind of what we did. I don't, there was, I don't think a lot of thought went into it. It was more just to us. Any band on that comp was as big as any band anywhere. Well, it's funny because now in more recent years, there's like been that Crimshine box set. Like I think a lot more kind of collector focus has gone on that scene, but you guys were super early into that way of digging back into that local scene, right? Like just, you know, it's like five yeah. years basically after it happened. Right. And it felt like forever for me as like a new kid entering the scene, I felt like I was like entering like hollow ground, hollow ground. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like it was all these, and again, it's, it's funny in hindsight, but it's like all these, you know, people who were probably four or five years older than me, but I thought they were like just old, awesome, like godlike figures, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I think it's been said a million times, but I think the stuff Aaron Comet Bus has done to preserve stories of that scene and Eggplant and all of those guys who were kind of like documentarians and also a part of it, I think for, for the younger generation like mine, that provided that provided kind of a blueprint and it provided a way to like look back and dig into it and see what it was. And again, I'm talking about it like it was ancient history. It was literally like three or four years before I, what I'm talking about, yeah. but it felt like an old, you know, well, time moves so much. Well, it's time was so much slower back then. Right. Like it just felt like these tapes took forever to come out. Records took forever to come out. Like everything's so instantaneous now that I don't know, yep. there's such a compression of, of information. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you had to search for it. So it was like, it felt, you know, it felt like you were uncovering like treasures and you share them with your friends and they were really special. It wasn't something I could just send you, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm looking at your background right now and I'm, it's a, it, it's a nice trip down memory lane, like the seven <laughs> inches and the things that, you know, you get a copy of, maybe you put it on a tape, if you could get a record player, or you just have to like find a friend's house to listen to it on a record player. It was like how that collecting became, it, it was just so obsessive. Mm -hmm. I, I'm always amazed too by like, you know, Aaron, and there's definitely people that in different scenes were able to remove themselves from what was happening around them enough to know this is important. I'm going to, I'm going to archive what's happening around me. Cause like most of us are just caught up in what's going on in our day-to-day -day lives. hundred percent. I, I'm so in awe of people that can know they're in the middle of something when they're in the middle of something. Yeah. Cause I definitely don't have that skill. Like so when you first started going to shows like obviously um you know green day you mentioned but who are some of the other local bands that were happening that were really exciting you off the bat so when i really started going it's like green day was kind of taking off right when i was entering like mm -hmm. taking off on a mainstream like we were talking about um so when i when i really started going there and it became like you said earlier like my identity and i was like oh gilman on friday and saturday is who i am for that part of my life it was, you know, the big, big bands. Well, Rancid was the biggest and they'd headline a couple times a year. But, you know, they were like, it was sold out, lying down the block to get in kind of situation every time Rancid played. Um, play Gilman. They play around town like like one of our friends lived with Lars. So they play like in the kitchen over at Punks with Presses and that would be incredible. But the bigger bands were like, AFI was just getting huge. I remember I went to their first show at Gilman and that was like, there were like maybe 15 of us there and I still remember everybody lost their mind because they put on the show. Like there were a million people there. It was incredible. AFI, Screw 32, Hellbillies, Parasites, you know, 
Swing and Utters? Jawbreaker, Swing and Utters. Oh, my God. I love the Swing and Utters. Amazing. Yeah. Swing and Utters were huge. Redemption 87. Oh, yeah. Redemption I mean, 87. I could go on for like an hour. But yeah. Well, yeah. And it's like, those are like some of my favorite bands. Like, I think back to that time, and that's like, you know, like, uh, that's one of my favorite scenes just because, like, none of those bands sound anything alike. But they're all like still amazing bands. Like going back to them today, like Screw Thirty Two, what an underrated hardcore band. Oh, I I love them so much. I their first album and their first seven inch were like, I just love them. I you know they were my favorite things. Like yeah, and it was them and AFI really. I feel like were the without being the Rancids and the Jawbreakers who had kind of already broken through on a bigger level. AFI and Screw 32 were like still very much local, still always there and just, but were humongous in the scene. Mm -hmm. And they eventually. And Swing and Utters. Yeah. And I think eventually AFI gets banned, right? Well, from playing there, they can't play there anymore. 700 people show up to see them. I think the last time they is played. Is that true? I had, I had no idea. I'm, I'm, I'm now I remember, I got to ask Davey because this is very outdated gossip from back then, but I thought it was just not banned for any reason other than they'd just gotten too big to play that room at a certain point because they get huge. They're another one. Oh yeah. They got, they just blew up. I mean, so when did you start playing music? Um, probably about less than a year before I got introduced to punk rock. I basically, I think, you know, I got in, like, like I said, I got very into Metallica. <laughs> and so I, my parents got me a guitar for Christmas, I guess my freshman year in college, I mean, in high school. And I just kind of started playing and I sucked. I was not good. I never actually got very good, but I loved it. But so probably, yeah, when I was like 14, I think, is that that's when I got into playing music. I, I had always been obsessed with music. So what was the first band you did? Was it Link 80? It was Link 80. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, I didn't even, honestly, I met Joey and Joey, the drummer was like, we should start a band. And I was like, cool. Wait, that's not true. I lied. Hold on. Sorry. <laughs> I had done a band with a couple friends from high school for, I think we practiced like once or twice. Okay. What was it called? And we had a real, it was called substance and the A was an anarchy symbol. Of course. Awesome. <laughs> because it had to be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that was, that was four of us. And we, I think we practiced maybe one time, maybe twice. How, how popular was punk in your high school? Cause like, as we're talking about rancid is like a big band, but like, is it still like very much like a small thing? Yeah. Nobody, nobody at my high school that <laughs> I knew of. Yeah. I don't know. I honestly, I mean, except for my girlfriend who got me into it. Yeah. Uh, it was, I didn't, I don't think anybody really did. There was one guy who was a year older than me, who was like full punk rocked out like way before I was like ready for that. And I was like, wow, <laughs> that guy's wild. Um, <laughs> And, and I mean, it was so small that uh, Aaron, who ended up playing trumpet for Link 80, the way we became friends and the way he became, got in the band is he had, he had like a, like a two-tone patch on his bag. So not even mm -hmm. punk rock, but like he had a two-tone, you know, little ska guy on his backpack. And I was like, hey, you like music that's not just whatever's on the radio. Maybe we should hang out we're still friends today <laughs> it's, it's funny because like people that were into you know like i guess punk pre-nirvana talk about how you could go up to anyone that wore anything remotely punk and you knew that they were part of the same thing but i yeah like you're saying i felt that by the time i was getting into it around the same time like it was still small enough that yeah anyone you saw with anything remotely approaching 
something that wasn't on the radio, you're like, oh, yeah. this person could be something. This is a lead. I got to hang out. I guess out with we got to be friends. I guess, yeah, yeah we got to do this shit. 100%. Uh, uh, so when uh, Link 80 first started playing, like, who were the like were there any young bands like who were the first young bands that you guys started playing in like the scene because it's kind of before a, a separate ska punk scene begins to emerge right yeah there was no there i mean other things were happening simultaneously like no doubt was the thing yeah, but, yeah. but i didn't know who no doubt was yet that was still a couple years away and uh like a lot of those bands that became that wave of kind of scott punk were all all starting and kind of done things but i wasn't aware of any of them i think for us it was really just I'm sure this will not come as a surprise. It was Op Ivy. <laughs> We're like, cool. They they had horns on Bad Town. Let's get horns. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It was like kind of that simple. But uh, yeah, the bands we were playing with were, you know, Oppressed Logic was a band that was a really, they they were like real, like, I don't even know what you'd call them in terms of, they, they had like a work ethic where they played, I swear to God, seven days a week. There was always an Oppressed Logic show somewhere. And they're from New Mexico and, originally, right? Are they? That, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I only I, know them from the Bay Area stuff. But. I think they are. And I think one of the guys now is in in Necrot. And uh, and I think Steve-O hung out with them when they were in New Mexico from Jackass. Really? When he was on the show, he talked about how they were like his buddies from the New Mexico days. I got to wow. double check that. So. <laughs> that sounds familiar now that you're mentioning it. It does sound familiar. So it was like them. There was this band Wet Nap that we played with all the time. They were kind of like our brother band. Like and you just split with just, them too, eventually, right? We did our first record was a split with them and uh, Sub Incision. You know, we try to get on the bigger shows. Like we played a couple shows with Swing and Utters and those guys, but we were always the nobody gave a shit band. And then Skank and Pickle, we played with them a couple times. And when they were bigger, you know, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was kind of a new, a new, we weren't the, there was like an in-between. There was the original scene with the Op Ivies and Crimp Shrines and all that. And then there was the kind of the uh, next wave that had like Rancid and Jawbreaker. And that's where kind of Green Day got bigger, even though they were obviously there for the first, the beginning of it all. And then I feel like ours was kind of the next wave, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of, we were like in the wake of AFI and Screw 32. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, and it's also, it's interesting because you know yourselves and i guess like all bets off and there's like a bunch of younger all bets off yeah yeah rest in peace sammy like there's a yeah uh like sort of like a you're like you're saying there's like another wave there's like a perpetual turnover of stuff at the gilman's almost like sedimentary rock you can go back and study these scenes and obviously there's bands like you're saying that link these scenes to each other but they are kind of distinct waves of young people getting into it exactly and they all kind of there's all yeah there's always a little overlap you know like it's like all bets off, you know, Sammy was a huge part of Link 80. Like Sammy was a huge part of everything we did. He was always around him and Nick were like best friends. And then he started all bets off kind of when we were sort of, well, not we, when I was sort of like leaving the band mm. and then all bets off really took off after that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what was like, um, do you remember the first time you guys played the Gilman? Was that the first place you guys really started playing? We played a bunch of like, you know, vets halls, backyards, basements, you yeah. know, that kind of thing. Like random, random bars in the middle of nowhere that become all age clubs on like Tuesday, that sort of <laughs> situation. And then Gilman, our first show at Gilman, I want to say was 94. It would have been like early 94. And it was, you know, one of those new band nights where there were like eight bands everybody gets like 20 minutes and that was our first show there 
and it was it was it was really fucking cool <laughs> so do you remember any of the bands that played that thing were there anyone that went on to kind of or were a thing already? there was a i remember no because they were all new bands there was a band yeah. called like mate one uh all bets not not all bets off uh poor impulse control i can't remember the others i wrote them down i'm obsessive about uh chronicling things not because like we were talking about earlier that I think I'm in the middle of something, but more just I'm obsessive about it. My mom was a big scrapbooker. I've, I've always been like scrapbooks, notes. Like I have every single show we ever played, where, with who, everything written down. Well, but, you know, it's funny you said like, but not because you think you were part of a thing, but you were, you know, like people that have come on this show talk about Link 80 as being, you know, in the same way like Operation Ivy was to you guys. Like it's it, like you guys became to them, you know, like there that's, is that. That's mind-blowing but very cool to hear yeah like and i think that's the thing about this is like there is a continuance and it's like it's that's the thing that's so amazing about the scene is there is like this sort of perpetual turnover of interesting people coming out of it like yeah going back like you know we were talking about penelope spheris but like you know her coming out of it and directing everything she did to you directing stuff to like you know there's right. just a perpetual turnover of just you know people that don't fit into whatever's on the radio yeah, no, I agree. And I think it really builds, I think there's like a, you know, not to be corny, but I think there's like an ethic that goes along with it that translates into other things. Even if you're not doing literally making music, I think that kind of ethic that gets instilled in you when you're young and get into punk rock, I think you carry that with you, at least I do, mm -hmm. throughout, you know, and it all, all the kind of trappings of the the outward showing of what it means to be punk rock when i think you're younger really matter which was weirdly something i always kind of fought against so i was always the guy in the band that was like the preppy you know to me i was like well you guys all are doing the punk rock tattoo thing and i don't want to do that because you're all doing <laughs> it and then meanwhile in high school i'm like well i don't want to do what you guys are doing either so then i end up in this weird in-between where i kind of don't fit in with either world but <laughs> but you know it's that thing i think but the what the the inner stuff that kind of gets built in i think that's the stuff that you really take with you as you get older or at least i did yeah it's almost like more comparable to like a religion than a music scene because like this is stuff that these are values that you're going to wind up talking about like yeah, you, you hold on to them yeah exactly like someone selling out or someone like just all these things that are just like built into your your psyche just because we're like going to these church like yeah, things in, these, in the gilman and halls like that at each time we go in percent and you've got your congregation and your people who you share that community with and they become your friends and yeah absolutely and you're singing together and you're yeah and you're dancing together and you're communing and really not much different <laughs> no exactly and, and we have to pay our uh, our tithing to the church in the form of buying records and paying entry fee to the to the church each yeah. time we go buying shirts and merch and yeah um you know you be you mentioned playing there in 94 and you know going to the the dookie kind of release party there's it's almost like a somewhat storied uh animosity that kind of begins to emerge locally towards the idea of selling out and the idea of getting popular like could you feel that as a kid going to these shows because you're already kind of immersed in the scene at that point oh yeah big time i remember that so well because like and for me like the green day one never quite clicked for me like i never understood it on a like a dna level because a i was kind of newer to the scene so i had only been part of it for not that long i didn't have like a my identity wasn't wrapped up in them selling out or not selling out but i remember the conversation being green day is selling out green day or sellouts endlessly which again in hindsight is like 
bananas, but it was a real part of it. I, I always remember that in a large part, at least my impression was that as soon as Dookie came out and everybody absolutely loved it, that went away like instantly. It was like, who cares? They're incredible. And they did the thing that I think, you know, I think a lot of it's, this is extremely true in the Bay Area and the East Bay, especially. But I think it's probably true a lot of places where, yeah, the, you're you're so tied to your location as part of your identity. You know, it's like we all grew up on we have Green Day and we have the punk scene, but we also have like Too Short, who, it, you know, teaches you at a very young age. Like if you're from Oakland, you're from Oakland, like say, mm-hmm. say where you're from, be proud of where you're from. And I think that identity in the Bay Area scene is a big part of it. You know, it's always the East Bay this, East Bay that, you know, and, you know, Green Dookie, Dookie's cover is literally like an homage to great Bay Area things. You know, it's like, I think it never, it never felt like, oh, this is a, they're leaving things behind. It's like, these are the same guys doing the same thing on a bigger level and everybody should be proud of them. And it was really, I think the one that got me in, in hind was jawbreaker because jawbreaker i took very personally i think as most people who are into jawbreaker do it's very very personal and you just love them and i love them and still do and when dear you came out that was one that i remember just the production audio i w- i was like oh this sounds different and it took me about at least two weeks maybe a month to like give it a second listen you know i basically got it they're my favorite band and it wasn't like I was mad at them for selling out. I didn't really care about that. But I was like, oh, now they just kind of sound poppy. And I don't like that. That that album has now become one of my favorite albums of all time. So, but it is that thing that I think when you're a kid and there's the sellout. And I don't know. I'm fascinated yeah. with the sellout thing. I'd love to know what you think about it. Because I think that was a thing at a moment in time that has now sort of gone away. Yeah. Well, I think we're like we were talking about with identity. You know, it's like this stuff was so much a part of our identity and we took this stuff so personally and you're so tied to these people and, and they become, you know, these sort of chase things to you that when they're, when they, you know, when they're real people making real world decisions, you know, you just can't internalize it. You just can't accept it. And it's, yeah, it's interesting how punk is like this weird thing where you build these people up once again, you know, not to keep, hammering on the religion thing but like you almost like build these people up to eventually just have to kill your gods because your god betrays you in some way and it's just like you're just like i hate this guy now like why do they do this to me but it's yeah right like it is fascinating how we're we're in a point where there is no really truly independent reality anymore like we're all on streaming services we're all fighting for the like or the click yeah you know, like it's, we're, we're, it's the same game now. Yeah, it's interesting because, and again, I, I never, I don't think I ever, and maybe I'm forgetting something, but I don't think I ever consciously like didn't listen to something because of being a sellout. You know, I was always mm-hmm. like, whatever, it's a, it's a thing people are talking about around and I'm, I get it, but I also was like, this album's great. I'm going to listen to it. I don't really care what, and I think, you know, I understood intrinsically on some level, not as well as I do now, obviously, but on some level, like well, people have to make a living. Like they have to provide for their families. Like this is this notion that everything should just forever be free. It's still, I still have trouble doing that. Like even to this day, it's like occasionally we'll get asked to do something where it's like, you know, Hey, do you want to do this? And you can get paid. And it's like, well, why would I get paid to like talk to somebody? That's a fucking crazy thing. Like that feels awful. That makes me feel dirty, you know? Uh, 
so I think it never leaves you like a lot of the stuff we're talking about, but it is bizarre because yeah, again, now you don't, your music, like I, I want to know so badly. I, and I think about this constantly is not genre necessarily, but what is, are there scenes right now that are doing the same thing for people that punk rock did for us when we were kids? Like, are there scenes where people who don't feel like they belong and don't, and just kind of like have a knee jerk reaction against the mainstream that they can go find a community that they can be a part of that isn't online. That's like an in-person thing. I mean, I'm sure those, you know, I'm not talking about message boards. I'm talking about like, and I, I, I don't know. I'm curious. I'm, I'm too old. I'm an old dude. I don't like, I'm not tied into that stuff. I don't know. I like, I, I, you know, I knew there was obviously like, it does, it does continue, you know, like there's a new Gilman Great. scene that's kind of like carried on and mm -hmm. You know, a couple of years ago, I went out um, and and went and did to these all these different all ages shows on the West Coast, like little DIY type all ages shows, and it was amazing to kind of see just the same stuff. Like, obviously, the technology's changed, and so the way people find out about these shows or right. maybe engage with the music has changed slightly. But it was just fascinating to kind of see, like, oh shit, there are young people that are coming to these places and now obviously with what's happening now it's changed but but well yeah you know, COVID, aside. <laughs> COVID aside and actually if you get a chance look up the section hate footage because they played a show one of the first shows after the first lockdown was lifted and during the pandemic that must have been 10,000 I don't know how many thousands of people outside under a freeway in LA people are setting off road flares like it finally looks like people warned you punk was going to be like like oh, there's wow. bonfires <laughs> it's incredible yes, <laughs> it's awesome like police cars Holy are driving shit. by with sirens and just like driving away like yeah there's no way we yeah. can deal with this. nothing we can do here <laughs> <laughs> no let's just wash our hands of this thing um but back to this not to harp on to the the time and the sellout thing but like you know like famously jello biafra was assaulted over some guy perceiving him to be a quote-unquote sellout like it did get quite secretarian and violent yeah it did i remember that really well that's when i was going a lot and i remember i went to his first he did like a a reading after like a you know reading slash not really poetry but and he was like in a my memory is that he was in a wheelchair he might have just been mm -hmm. in a cast like i think he's in a wheelchair i think i've seen photos from it actually Oh, really? Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I, oh, I should look those up because I, yeah, I remember going to see that. And I actually remember being, you know, it's that thing where you get a little disillusioned with your heroes, you know, where he was just like, and again, he had just been beaten up. So I'm not, I'm not making a judgment on <laughs> any of that shit. But I, I have a very vivid memory of going to see him talk and or do whatever his reading and being disillusioned on some level. Because I remember being like, this is angry and bitter and mad and righteous and holier than thou and it really rubbed me wrong like to the point that for a couple years i remember like oh i'm not really listening to dead kennys i now listen to them still but like it was bizarre it was one of those things where i think you know i'm getting a little off topic but it's like there was such a positivity to that scene you know and i think there was an underbelly of something a little more a little darker happening kind of under the surface that occasionally would pop out and you know it it wasn't quite the shangri-la i think we all wanted it to be you know mm. uh and i think that was the first time i sort of noticed that in a way that was that affected me um but yeah but to go back to your point yeah people took it seriously like the jello Biafra incident was i mean yeah. that was a big deal <laughs> like 
yeah it was like written about in max rock and roll it was like it was yeah. you know in the pre-internet world like that's as equivalent of like a viral story like everyone knew about that and it was instantly yeah and it it, it you know i think everywhere people kind of drew lines on on which side you were on if, if someone's gonna yeah. be a quote-unquote sellout and then it became much murkier when independent labels started getting huge and then it was like you're a sellout if you're on an independent label versus yeah a, a i remember DIY people calling label. rancid a sellout and you know i i was like how is this band that is a part of this the foundation of this entire thing mm-hmm. that these guys like take everything out of it like these guys are part of they built this thing you know with a lot of other people but why are why are they sellouts because they're on epitaph which is an la label so boo you know like it's it's funny though it's almost like that's what keeps punk thriving is that everything gets cut off once it's in full bloom so (laughs) nothing has a chance to die and bring down the plant as a whole so everything's just kind of cut off and it's like okay like you know obviously they're still punk you're still part of it but there's still this sort of like diy center that's going to be like no no that's not part of this thing yeah and and that thing is going to be able to carry on also you know, it, it, it's so weird because once again, these are spans of like two or three years that people go from being the the heroes of the scene, the builders of the scene, to being like the nemesis of the scene that's still going on. Like I remember going to the Gilman for the first time, ninety nine, ninety eight, and talking to kids, and they were like, "Yeah, fuck Rancid. We're not about Rancid." Anymore. <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh, oh yeah. man, oh man, what a bummer." Yeah, it was definitely <laughs> behind the times in Toronto, I guess, because I was still all about Rancid. <laughs> And still I'm all I'm still all about Ransom. Yeah. I fucking love Ransom. Uh yeah, no, it that's 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 wild. You mentioned the punks with Press's house, and that's another sort of controversy that became uh like a massive thing that everyone talked about is sort of the the when the dissolving of the punks with presses kind of scene and the accusations that came out. Um, yeah, fill me in a little bit because I think by that time I had kind of left. I had kind of, you know, I went to college. Well, I went to college in 96, but I was still doing band stuff for the first year and a half of that. Mm-hmm. And then so by like 98, I was kind of removed, you know, it's like my time was really like 93, 98. And then I dip in and stuff. But like, but I know there was stuff because I remember going to see I saw Promise Ring at Punks with Presses after after they'd moved. There was a Punks with Presses on 26th and Union in Oakland, which was the one that I always went to. And then they moved to a bigger warehouse over kind of an Emeryville area or something. I could get some of this wrong, but, and then after that, I know shit went down, but I don't really know what happened. I I like, and once again, most of my awareness of this comes from a 15 song. Um, So uh, I don't know if I have all the details figured out because uh, Jeff Ott wrote like a quite an impassioned song about the whole thing. And I remember it playing out in the letter section of MRR and it was like a big, big deal back then obviously did it have to do with like sexual abuse stuff yeah like it had to do with someone that was running it um and and he actually is called out by name um in the beginning of the 15 song and i've got to listen to this song yeah he got called out in i think it was a gilman meeting that people started just like kind of coming forward with stories and things like that and then it just sort of i think dissolved from there wow yeah i don't it's so weird like i i can't add much to that but i do like we hung out there a lot Mm-hmm. a lot a lot i never had anything happen i do remember towards the end of my time hanging out there there were like rumors and stuff and you kind of hear like whispers of things but you were never quite sure you know it's like it was rumors and again this is the 90s and homophobia was way more hardcore mm-hmm. i mean homophobia is still obviously awful but like 
it was everything was homophobia was not a thing that we people talked about publicly the mm-hmm. way we do now mm-hmm. as as an evil you know and i remember there was a lot of like well is that are the accusations homophobic or that that's that's my only memory of it really like is and i don't think i ever knew the truth so this is this is news to me but fascinating well it's, it's interesting and i don't know what happened with any of those guys like i haven't i mean i haven't talked to jux in 30 years yeah like i i don't remember i I remember like it was kind of the end of punks with presses shortly thereafter um and you know once again being in toronto and it was like it's so different to think of you know where you're reading about this in max rock and roll sort of like two months after everything had happened through letters that people had sent in type thing so uh, i don't really remember how it all uh resolved and and things like that in the end but it certainly is something that you know is talked about and at the time was talked about a lot like this was the epicenter of punk rock like this was yeah where all the scenes kind of converged and i think it gets back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago where there was like there was something there was a there was a darkness underneath mm-hmm. it all it wasn't mm-hmm. like this hippy dippy thing there was definitely like a vibe you know and i i and it's weird because then i you know you have to like reconcile that with like my time at punk suppresses where my memories are like i see rancid and they playing in the kitchen i see jawbreaker playing in the kitchen bouncing souls stopping by on tour to play in the kitchen and it was like you know for 15 16 year old me all my favorite bands in a in a tiny little room you're like this is the best thing ever yeah and like then it, to find out about that stuff later is it's fucked up well and i think it goes you know like to to just the reality of punk rock where you have these sort of dualities of of people that are outside and marginalized drawn to it yeah. and then people that are going to want to prey on these people that are outside and marginalized that yep. are drawn to it and it just seems like you know it's not something that's unique to that scene sadly it's it's something that you know plays out time and time again in various scenes yeah i believe it and it's also because you have a lot of people who are you know they're vulnerable like mm-hmm. and i think that's it's built into the scene you have to have that like i'm looking for something i'm trying to find my place on some level and yeah again um, not to make it all about church but another problem that runs through religion yeah absolutely and there's also you know like this sort of built-in rejection of authority and the sort of yep. like you know you you know this is our secret thing punk rock you know like don't tell like it's got all these sort of like natural precursors and in the same way religion has natural precursors that makes it you know ripe for abusers to kind of sadly operate in plain yeah. sight you know and, and it yeah. just becomes part of the lexicon almost 100 yeah it's really fucked up not to awkwardly transition to to much more <laughs> less or less hor- horrible things to talk about i should say decidedly less horrible things to talk about but marshall stacks was uh, a member of link 82 right no marshall was a member of like blats and gross in this this band that you did a split with on Switchblade, right? What in sub incision? Oh yeah, he was in sub incision. That's it. Sub incision. That's what I'm thinking. That's yeah, something. he was in. He was one of those guys who we just like idolized because he was part of the original scene, and he had yeah. Blatz, who we love. Blatz was one of you know that Blatz filth record. I still know every song on that backwards and forwards, and it it's yeah. And he recorded our first demo. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, that's that must yeah. be what I'm thinking of because like. It's funny how there is that, you know, once again, like we're talking about their separate scenes, but there is that continuance of certain people like Jesse Luscious, of course, um, playing the mm-hmm. criminals later on and stuff. So yep. there is that sort of like continuation from the old scene, I guess, the whole way through. Yeah, for sure. Jess, Jesse Luscious, I never knew him, but he was always there. He was like the elder statesman when I started going and he yeah. was always there. He was like the cool kid on campus. I, you know, I mean, 
I met him a bunch, but I, I never knew him and I, he would never remember me. But uh, I always remember this just to shine a light on how goofy like I was at the time. I remember the first time I met Jesse Luscious, just meeting him, some being like, oh, this Jesse. And in mind, I was like, is that Jesse Michaels? Because Jesse Michaels was my absolute <laughs> full stop idol. You know what I mean? I like his, his, that is the first time I fell in love with lyrics, with words. I was like, holy shit, life changing. And I, for a, probably like a better part of a year, I thought Jesse Luscious was Jesse Michaels. <laughs> <laughs> they do have kind of like a similar vibe too, where like you could like, especially because there's not that many photos of Operation Ivy. where you're I didn't like, know what anybody looked like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just had the energy record. So I had like one picture of him in like a class shirt with a bandana around his head. And I was like, like, that "Ah." dude, that dude's my idol. I don't like, yeah. Um, Yeah, no, it's, it's, were they, I guess filth would have been done by that point and blats would have been done though, right? Filth was done. Yeah, they were done. Yeah. But criminals was around and grups was around. Grups, that's groups, grups. Groups, I always call them grups. Yeah, same here. I think I'll call them GR apostrophe UPS. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, What about like Spaz and any of that sort of power violence stuff? Did you ever see any of those bands? I don't think I ever saw Spaz, no. There was like, because there's, once again, like there's so many scenes kind of overlapping on top of each other. When did it sort of begin emerging that there was, or did it start emerging that there was like sort of the separate ska punk scene happening, which eventually becomes ginormous? Well, it's so funny because... Well, no doubt broke, right? And they got gigantic. Because that was 96 or 95? I think like, 96. When, when did, that's when Tragic Kingdom came out, 96? That feels right. Yeah, I think it was 96, but I, yeah. think it even, I don't think it even exploded to like even, maybe even 97 when it started really exploding. Maybe 96 or... Whenever like a Just a Girl became yeah. like <laughs> the song on the radio. Yeah. And But up until then, it was like, you know, there were there were some other bands in, in our like little scene that had Scott punk flavors, like wet map had occasionally they'd have a saxophone and, and, but it was mostly still like there were tried and true punk rock. Don't fuck with me, punk rock and ska, you know? And it was like wildly different. And so for us, it was always like, we never, I think it was part of the thing that I loved is that we never quite fit, you know, like we play with full on ska shows where everybody hated us. Cause they were like, this is you're ruining our vibe (laughs) and then you know we play with full-on punk shows where everyone was like you guys suck you're not cool enough and then you know later on we started playing like real hardcore shows which was a whole other thing (laughs) and then you know the only times it felt like really really like we were just in a pocket was uh when when we were playing with other bands especially we're kind of getting going would be you know with skanking pickle when we'd open for them like that crowd was always very welcoming and open or open to us. And like, there were a few of those bands that we'd play with where they'd be like, it'd be hodgepodgey enough that everything goes. Yeah. But you know, well, and it, cause it does eventually. And then maybe this is after the point where you're like kind of more focused on college stuff and, and not able to, you know, be actively involved in the band anymore, where it just becomes, it becomes like the dominant part of the scene. Like these shows become huge. Like some of these, especially smaller, when I say smaller, I mean, smaller than no doubt, but like, these become the biggest bands kind of on the circuit. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of who those bands were. Cause the bands that the Scott punk bands that we played with, like, I mean, I'm drawing a blank. Like there were a ton of bands that were more ska, like with hints of punk, like a lot of those kind of bands, like yeah. the hippos and meal ticket and, you know, Goldfinger, the, real big fish, like yeah. that vibe. 
But we yeah. never quite fit with that crowd because, I mean, admittedly, not to sound like a jerk, but they were all kind of too poppy for us. I mean, I love a lot of those guys. And, like, I mean, a lot of the guys in the Hippos are still really good friends to this day. But, like, you know, Slow Gherkin, that whole kind of – that what became, like, the Asian man bands. Yeah. Well, like, I think Slapstick would become huge from Chicago. So, yeah, Slapstick was – I like, felt like they were kind of on their own level. Yeah, well, it felt me. like – and then Blink-80, you know, like, I think there's, like, this whole kind of – They, they ne- suck. <laughs> well, I think there's almost like a next wave of bands that become the bands they sort of like are, you know, in the wake of these bands becoming huge radio bands and all these kids getting into this scene. Like these are the bands that are touring that are like already established doing this kind of music. Suicide Machines, of course, as well. Suicide Machines. Yeah, that's a that's a great example. And they were the ones. Suicide Machines and Rudiments were, I feel like, the two that we had the most in common with musically. Mm hmm. Cause it was kind of like, it was hard to sort of pin down the sound. It was a little, and they were, there was like the energy level was through the roof, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's like really where like, you know, cause when Jesse Michaels was on the show, he talks the same way about how the ska scene hated him, you know, like they, right. they just would not go over well with those bands or not necessarily the bands, but like people going to the shows because that's not what they were looking for. They were looking for something very specific in the sound. And it's kind of yeah. like, later on in the 90s where this sort of like the real crossover really happens with ska punk where you do have like you're saying these high energy punk bands doing the syncopation but like also like having horns you know but much more of a punk approach to this music right yeah it 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 was a weird that was like less than jake i guess falls in that category right Mm -hmm. yeah oh definitely Uh, they would be be another massive band it feels like there's like massive bands in every little pocket of the country at that point in the u.s yeah totally Especially Florida. <laughs> yeah, Florida. Yeah. Florida weirdly becomes like towards the later part of the nineties, like another place that almost becomes like the epicenter of punk in a way, you know, no idea records being from there and all these different types of totally. bands. It's like, it's interesting how it's a mantle that gets passed around where like the hot scene is at any given time. Yeah. I love it though. It's so interesting. So what happened in kind of the wake of 17 reasons? Like, was it kind of like a, a you know, not a hit obviously, but like, was it, popular with people right at the gate could you get a sense that this was something people were gravitating to you know if i'm being honest i don't think so like Mm -hmm. i like our shows got bigger you know and i never could tell if it was related to the album or not or if it was just hey look we're playing again for the 29th weekend in a row (laughs) like (laughs) you know just onslaught of playing the same places over and over and over I mean, our shows on tours got bigger and bigger and, you know, people, as I think anybody in a band who's ever toured knows that first time you're like traveling and there's five people in a state you've never even been to that are singing along. It's the most incredible feeling in the world, right? You're just like, Mm -hmm. how do they even find us? Like, what is happening? And that happened more and more. So I definitely felt that. I mean, I'll be honest, I feel like a lot of the, the, the good, the positive Link 80 reactions and stuff that I've heard feel like I, again, I wasn't aware of it at the time. Like the shows were getting bigger, but I never had a moment where I was like, man, we're doing it. <laughs> you know, it always just felt like friends in a van hoping 20 people show up, you know, and our Gilman shows got pretty big by the end, by the end of my time in the band. So did it ever feel like this was going to be, this could potentially be a career or never? it's a i mean i think i think it would be different for everybody in the band if you asked them i know yeah. for nick the singer it definitely was like full stop he wanted to take this all the way which is something i never even kind of wrapped my head around until way after the fact 
And he was the one who was really pushing it on like, we got to do an album, no more seven inches. We're touring every weekend. We're touring full state tours every summer. Uh, you know, we're doing all the things that in hindsight are pretty obvious, but as a kid, I was never really aware of it. Nick was pushing all of that. And, uh, for me, it really came to a head in 97 on our last summer tour, my last summer tour. Um, cause I, I had spent one year at school traveling back from Santa Cruz to Oakland or to Richmond every weekend to go on tour, to practice, to do all that. So for about a year, my Monday through Thursday was college Friday through Sunday was banned. Mm. And so I would do that. And then I'm trying to think, yeah. So then after that, we had like a Japan tour booked and all these, we were, it was basically like, you have to quit school. You got to yeah, either quit school or quit the band the choice is yours. And I remember I was kind of leaning towards quitting school, but also terrified of what that means. Like my parents and my life and is that the right decision, but these are all my best friends and I don't want to not do it with them. And then everything kind of came to a head and Nick left the band slash got kicked out that whole mess that we had. And that for me kind of made the choice for me in a weird way, as undramatic as that is, it was like, I was like, well, I'm not, I don't need to go redo this. And I don't want to, you know, I, my heart just wasn't in it as much anymore, even though I really loved all the guys. Um, and so kind of, honestly, the decision kind of got made for me, like, but I do think, yes, to answer the question for some of the people, especially Nick, they wanted it to be like, a band that could be a, you know, a career. Yeah. Like it's, it's interesting because it, it, it you know, like the, at, the, at this point bands were selling 50,000 CDs, 40,000 CDs. So like the idea that yeah. you could kind of make a living off just selling CDs as like a really young band. Yeah. I, I got a check for five grand when we made 17 reasons mm -hmm. and I opened a bank account, same bank account I have to this day. And I remember <laughs> being like, wow. I just, I got 5,000 bucks. I was probably like 18 at the time, maybe 17. That was so much money, you know? Yeah. yeah. Was that Japan tour in the wake of that? Because there was that compilation, right? Like it was half Americans, half Japanese. Ska bands, ska punk bands, I think, that did Hopeless do it. I think you guys are on that. Maybe I'm mistaken. Oh, I don't know. No, maybe. There's we're on a lot of comps. Yeah, a lot of comps. I don't remember. Yeah. It was definitely the era of the compilation. I the, guess the era of the comps, yeah. $17 <laughs> CDs led to compilations being a necessity. I found a lot of bands, a lot of my favorite bands. Found on yeah. Comps. yeah, really like a life-changing thing, you know, these comps type thing. Yeah. Um. So, you know, you mentioned leaving, and I've talked to you forever, and like at some point, would you come back and do a part two? Because I could talk to you. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, yeah. Hours more. Because there's yeah. a lot more to get to. But, um, you know, at some point you kind of leave, um, and I guess Nick passes away shortly thereafter, right? Yeah, we left. I think our tour ended early August of 97, like the first or second, like really early August. And then Nick died September 20, September 20th. Mm -hmm. So what's that? Seven weeks. Yeah. Uh, in that time, he started another band and recorded an album <laughs> and, yeah. and put on shows. I mean, I saw him the night before he died at a, at one of his shows. Like, he was, he full, and to go back to what I was saying about how his drive was beyond, I think, mine and a lot of the other guys, is in the time that it took us to be like, well, shit, what are we going to do? We're going to get a new singer. He's like, already got a band, already booking shows, already recorded an album. Wow. So were you... Didn't waste any time. So had you already decided to leave the band before he had passed away? Was that already, like, 
going back to university? No, I hadn't. It, that's part of that was kind of the like the decision got made for me sort of thing. Like I, I, I was kind of like kind of had one foot in both worlds and I couldn't really decide. And, you know, I think I was leaning towards leaving school or at least taking a break from school and kind of, you know, but. In, in Santa Cruz, were you involved in the music scene at all or is it just sort of focused on I school? was. No, I was. I, you know, and especially after after my time in Link 80, I got a lot more involved in the music scene there because the music scene there in the late 90s was fantastic. It was mm-hmm. a lot of great bands and like a lot of the Asian man bands and like Mike Park was down all the time. And it was it was a really fun scene. I saw a ton of great shows. I did some bands there that were, you know, just fun local bands to kind of scratch where, that itch. Is that where Dolores started? Yeah, we did. Dolores was there. That was that was in Santa Cruz. Which and then has, I did that also after I moved to LA with different people. But yeah. Which has the Jonah Face Records connection. One of the most underappreciated yes. record labels. It's such a great record label. I still can't believe they agreed to put out our, our, our record. It's a great seven inch. It's thank you. Thank you. You might be the only person who's ever heard it, but thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> I'm I'm I definitely uh you know, I, I think it's it's like, you know, different what you're doing on that record, but like it's just, you know, with everything on that label, like, you know, that's one of those labels that, you know, you're not going to get a bad record. You might get a record you like less than others, but, you, you know, there's no bad Jonah, you know, records. No, no Man's Face records. They all had that experimental thing that you were like, I'm not sure what I'm going to get, but I'm going to like it. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's going to yeah. be like an interesting take on on poppy sounding punk every single yeah. time you get exactly. it. Exactly. So where did you guys kind of fit in musically, like in Santa Cruz? Like, were there other bands doing the same sort of sound? Or are you playing with the Asian Man Record stuff? Or yeah, we would we would play. I mean, we'd play Catalyst a lot, and we'd play, uh, which is like the the club there. And we mm-hmm. play. There was a Vets Hall there that we play a lot. Um, you know, I don't even honestly remember the name of the bands we play with, but they were all like best bands we hung hang out with. And I, it's weird. I I kind of don't remember. What I don't know I'm... how that's possible, but <laughs> well, like it's it's so funny because you know it's it's there's so many bands, you know, like you're involved with so many like different scenes and completely different bands each time. Yeah, there was you know it was like I mean I remember going to a ton of shows and like the Slow Gherkin and Good Riddance and all those bands that were from there and yeah yeah, a lot of the fat bands would come through all the time. Yeah, is Screw Thirty Two from there too? They're Bay Area. I they. I don't know. I feel like that's the other funny thing is a lot of people from the Bay Area moved to Santa Cruz at some point. So there's a lot of bands that kind of have one foot in both. Yeah. Over the years. I remember going to a show. I saw AFI and um, God, I can't remember who opened, but I remember Fury 66 was from there. Fury 66. Yeah. 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 Like it was uh, like you're saying, like, I remember that AFI show being crazy, like the biggest circle pit I've ever seen in my life. Oh my God. They are so good live. I haven't seen them live in so long, but man it's amazing one of the best and well it's great because every phase they're different but every phase they're still like and you saw them at the the very earliest phases but they're they're always awesome live no matter what they're doing always always awesome live and a fun afi side story real quick is that they when i was like struggling for money when i moved to la and i had like a job that i was the mail guy and i got no money and i really you know i was like i needed money and i had I had their first two seven inches and I sold them on eBay for 400, 500 bucks each. Yeah. Like this is probably 2002. And I was like, what people want to pay? I was like, please, I need the money. Like, and now I wish I had them, but. Oh, I would, I would, I'd still have never <laughs> they seen They pay them. rent for at least two months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the thing is like, 
there's a necessity in selling that stuff, but there's also the reality of like, yeah, but I might never get it again once I let it go. It's such a bummer. It it always such is. A bummer. Uh, one of my one of the most talked about things on this show was the infamous Toronto AFI riot show, where there was a massive riot at their show. Oh my God! Where? What venue? Uh, the Opera House here in Toronto, where they oh, they uh, they got into a massive fight, and Davey had to hide out of my house, which was a defining moment for me growing up. What? Yeah, it's, we talk about his his episodes on the show. We always I always bring it up, and it always comes up. So, uh, if you get a oh chance, go back and listen. To I gotta it. go back and listen. Yeah, yeah, that's it awesome. Was, it was an AFI, Good Riddance, uh, Lifetime, Weston, oh. and Ignite was supposed to play show. Oh my God, that's an incredible lineup. It Lifetime was. is one of my like all timers. It was I mean, amazing. It, it was it's like I look back on that bill and I'm like, wow, all those bands are incredible. It's so great. I, those 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 rare shows where every band is just insane. Yeah, and it feels like you know, like it's only you can only appreciate that in retrospect, where you realize like, yeah. oh wow, like that's wild how good things were at that time. And I think that you know just happens to scenes as you get further away from them, you realize how great they were. Hundred percent. Yeah, I, I got to talk to you about uh, Wes Craven and horror movies too, because yeah, sure. Th- that is, uh, have you seen Last of the Left? I'm sure you have. Obviously, oh, what yeah. were your thoughts the first time you saw it? Because that movie is one of those films that profoundly fucked up <laughs> movies forever yes. for me afterwards. No, same. I, I had, I had a very similar experience the first time I saw Texas Chainsaw, where yeah, I saw them, and I actually think I might have seen them both on tour for the first time uh because you know how that would happen like you'd end up staying in someone's house and be like let's throw in some fucked up movie and <laughs> yeah. that's what you do that night you know and i remember watching yeah last house on the left was one of those movies where i just felt like i couldn't look away but i also felt like dirty you know you just yeah. it's so it's so affecting it's so like it just fucks you up because mm-hmm. i mean i've never seen a movie like that before honestly Mm-hmm. And it's also at the same time, all that has that it's like really rough around the edges and it's like, but it's so well done in a way that you go like, Oh, there's like a lot going on under the hood there. This is not just the, like, this isn't all just to fuck with you. Like there's a lot happening and it's really saying something. And I think that was, that was a profound experience for sure. Yeah. Like I've only seen it the one time when I was a kid and it, it sat with it stayed with me so well that I've so much that I've 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 owned books about it. I've I own other copies of it. Never had the urge to watch them, have written essays <laughs> for school and done well with them without re-watching the movie because I can remember every scene is like hauntingly burned into my head in that movie. And the way you're talking about, like it is it's so rough around the edges, yet so affecting in the way like it's it, you know, in the same way that there's great rough around the edges recordings that are really affecting and powerful exactly it's like i mean i again to go back to you know the first time i heard that rancid album the first one and you play that for people who aren't into it and all they hear is the chaos and the noise but Mm. if you click into that it's the same exact thing you go like um but this is what's making it work for me like this the 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 roughness is what's making it so raw and so real and so like hard to watch but you can't look away Someone was on the show. Oh, it was actually Barry from the band Joyce Manor was on the show recently and talked about hearing Operation Ivy for the first time and how to him it sounded like something he shouldn't be listening to. Like he he felt like he was hearing the audio equivalent of, he described it as a snuff movie, but the idea of like hearing something that's so 
Like you're not supposed to hear this. Like look away, turn your ears away from this thing. And it's yeah, it's something that weirdly brings you back to these things. For not, sure, not, not it's funny. Movies, I mean. That's that's no, no. That's interesting though about Op Ivy because I had like the opposite experience. I was like, wow, <laughs> they're so pristine and good. And like, <laughs> yeah, same here. I was like, there's the perfect. But I know songs. that feeling. I've had yeah. that many of times. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, there's a Joyce Manor sticker in the new screen, by the way. On, oh, wow. That's awesome. Easter. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I look out for that stuff. That I love those. Uh, and I think that in the original screen, there's some like punk stuff too in the background and maybe number one or number two, I think. There's, well, I mean, Less Than Jake has a song on number two. Okay. Maybe I'm definitely thinking of that then. Man, there's the definitely Scott, that. Yeah. The Scott Punk it, connection runs deep with the Scream franchise. It, I mean, it really does. It's a, and I mean, an Alkaline Trio have a song on. Curse, which one. is Wes Craven's, well, and they have in ours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We put a trio song in, but I've I've used Alkaline Trio on I think three or four movies now. Uh, when when did you first be, like? Did you know them back in the day? Because they were kind of in the same sort of like world when they were first starting out, right? They were. I never like really knew them. Knew them like I I was like friendly with them. I I I did their first video with them, which was just on a whim. Like Mike Park called because I was at film school in Santa Cruz, and he was like, "Hey." this new band alkaline trio who i you know signed are coming to town and you guys want to do a video and i love them by that point because he'd given me the first i i mean i love god damn it and then he'd given me uh the the ep they had right after that the goodbye forever yeah 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 and so we did the video for goodbye forever which you know we basically made up on the spot and didn't know what we were doing but we shot it in a day or half a day even and just but that was their first video. So then, and you know, and I, I, they're one of my all time favorite bands. I just fucking love them. So, and whenever I have a chance to put music I like in our movies, I do. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I, you know, like it's, I had no idea you did that first video for them too. I did. It's not a good video. I'm going to go ahead and preface. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's me and my friend, Adam Levin just basically had a camera and just shot it and edited it together. And then it ended up on like a beer nuts or a, a hopeless comp or some. Oh, I definitely have seen that video then because I have those. That's amazing. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, yeah, like it's great, like that you're now in the position that you can kind of do this stuff, that you can have these artists, like you obviously have the whole way through, but like, you know, that this is, you know, like you can put the music you want to see in a movie in a movie. Yeah. It's, it's honestly one of my favorite parts. It's, I love it so much. And like when we first started doing stuff, like our first movie was uh, called VHS and we have like three or four songs in it. And I just literally called up Mike Park and was like, Hey, do you have stuff I can use for free? Cause we have no money. Like this is a no budget thing. So he gave me ME330, Alkaline Trio and Link 80. <laughs> uh, and then I did that again. I think I've done it on all of our movies. I've used either an Asian man band or a, or a band that was on Asian man. Like, is uh david arquette's talked about in interviews that he's in a punk have you ever talked to him about it is he in a punk i haven't talked to him about punk actually i've talked to him a lot about not a lot but i talked to him a little about the the early he came up like in like one of the first like graffiti crews in la he was really tied into that early hip-hop scene and all that stuff like 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 really really foundational stuff he was a part of it's it's fascinating when he opens up about it it was really cool yeah he's had like a lot of lives you know like a guy who keeps doing like weird like deathmatch wrestling like no yeah. need to do that but he did it no i i watched that movie uh the, the his documentary i don't know if you've seen it you can't kill david arquette yeah it's incredible i watched it the day before meeting him so it was like 
it was like, you know, you think you're meeting someone who you really like for movies. And then I watched that doc and was like, just profoundly shifted the way I looked at him. Cause I thought I'm, for me, I was one of the most like open vulnerable documentaries I've ever seen about somebody where I was just like, wow, I just feel for you on so many levels now. Like mm -hmm. it's, it, well, like, I guess we were talking about earlier when you, when you like look at bands, you look at celebrities, you look at anyone that's on some sort of pedestal or platform is like, there's a tense tendency to dehumanize them. Like you're like, well, they're so yes. successful, you know, at any level, like even if it's, you know, a, a Jello Biafra or someone selling like 10,000 records or 20,000 records, 30,000 records, you know, that, that you forget like, oh shit, these are real people and their real vulnerability there. And like to see him, you know, in that movie, you're like, wow, this is a, this is a guy who does not need to be this open about no. what he's going through being this open. Yeah, it's really it's 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 so it's so it's such an amazing documentary. Yeah, and he's an amazing dude. He's like he's like so great. I just I mean I couldn't go on all day about how wonderful he is. Was it like is is it surreal getting you know like obviously you've built your own cinematic worlds up until this point, but like to now be handed something like it feels almost like you know you're you're joining another band that's got you know, all these records and you got to maintain that. Like, like, do you feel that making this stuff or is that just external people looking at it? Yeah. You like, you mean like on screen, like on. Yeah. On screen. I mean, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. It. Yeah. Very much. I mean, in very, very much to the point of, you know, before reading the script for the first time being nervous to the point of like, maybe we shouldn't do this. Like if the script's not great, like this is, this is something that we love dearly. I wouldn't want to go, you know, join a band that I've loved for years and then fuck it up, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. be the, be the weak link. So, and then, you know, I mean, I, luckily we read it and the script was incredible and it was like, Oh shit. Like now it's ours to mess up. Okay. Let's not mess it up. You know? And it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was a lot. It was a lot to think about. Cause I think we'd feel horrible if we fucked it up. Yeah. Like, so we took it really seriously. Well, and I think that's the, that's the thing with this franchise. It's like, it's like the the most well i guess there's also uh saw as well like in the post world but like this is like the biggest horror thing in a long time when it finally came along and it's such like a cherished thing that and people hated that tv series so much yeah that... people were really mad at the tv series i i i liked the, i watched i only watched i think the first two seasons of it in their entirety but i liked i thought all the actors were good i enjoyed it yeah like i think it's not unwatchable like but people no get... not at all but give me a slasher TV show any day over most stuff. Well, it's it's interesting how like... yeah, exactly. Well, it's, right. interest, it's interesting how fan culture, much like in the way fans are in like punk rock, get like especially in this day and age, are so impassioned about this stuff. And you like, it almost is like yeah. a hive mind collecting of it online, where people, if if they don't like something, they turn on. And obviously, people love the new Scream, but like there is a, uh, like just sort of this feeding frenzy that happens when you mess with something that is so cherished to people. Yeah. I mean, I, I've had a really weird experience over the last year before the movie came out of getting more support than I think I could have ever imagined from Scream fans, you know, who I like genuinely one of the coolest communities of people that I've had any interaction with ever, where the, the, the reaction could have so easily been, fuck you guys, how dare you, which there was some of, of course, but a majority of Scream fans were like, hey, we trust you. Please don't let us down. Like, we, you yeah. you got it, you know, but it was really, really supportive. And it was really, it was a crazy, I've never had that experience before. It was to, 
just that people kind of blindly support because they they have they want to have faith in something. And then, you know, and that's that's infectious. I mean, I think it helped us throughout the process to be like, this is not we're not just making a movie for us. We're making a movie for people who already love these movies and we can't mm-hmm. let them down and we can't let the West West Craven's legacy down and we can't let Nevin Courtney and David down. Like there was, there was a lot writing on it for us just on like a personal level. Besides, of course, the fact that you just also want to make a movie that's good and entertaining. Yeah. It's, it's, do you find the fan bases changes depending on what type of horror movie it is? Like, like Scream is very much a series that centers the survivor, whereas, you yeah. know, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is something that centers the killer, you know? And it, Correct. It, do, you, do you find, like, that changes who's into the film or, like, the type of cult? Like, I mean, the culture more than who's into the film, because these movies are beloved by all types of people. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, I, I don't really know, but I do know that uh, I have found that the horror community is the first thing or the first like it's the first place that i've found something similar to punk rock where i'm like these people all all are supportive they're about like the right things a majority of you know they're they're and again just like with punk rock where i think if you're outside of it you look at it and kind of can turn your nose up and go uh they're all about like whatever drinking and partying and wearing shitty clothes and crappy bands that have horrible recordings, whatever that outside point of view is. And then looking at horror, it's like, oh, they're just into murder and mayhem and anarchy and blood and guts. And then you meet anybody and you're like, oh, these are like the sweetest, kindest people I've ever fucking met. And yeah. it's, it's a release. It's not a, it's not, they're not like bloodthirsty. It's just like, it's the exact opposite. And uh, so, yeah, but, but about the fan base, I, you know, I don't really know. Cause I feel like the fan base is so welcoming for what, regardless of what your jam is, you know, like I fall more towards the screen side of things. Cause I like, I like things that are a little, have a little more levity. And, you know, honestly, some of the Texas Chainsaw sequels though, were like, exactly. So it's like, I think there's something, you know, I think part of the reason a lot of these Halloween, a lot of these franchises have gone on for so long is because you can find something in all of them to like, if you're open to it, you know, regardless of like your, you know, it's, I, I, I go back to that. I think it's Stephen King quote of like, I, a bad horror movie is better than any other movie any day. You know what I mean? Like I'll watch a bad horror movie. I don't care. It's fucking great. Yeah. You know, there is no such thing as a bad horror movie. Same way. Like when I was younger and into punk, it's like, give me the worst recording of the worst band. And I'd be like, this is incredible. Yeah. You're right. I love this. Yeah. You're hundred percent right. Like the lower fi it is sometimes the better it is in, in punk and horror, like, like something yeah. that's super grainy and you can barely make it out. Sounds 100%. better almost if it's a, like a third generation tape or on a third generation videotape. Yeah. It makes it feel more personal for some reason, you know? Yeah. It's, it's weird how like, not weird. It's, it's amazing, but like how much like in the same way wrestling, I think's had this happen. Like the, like you're saying the stereotype of the fan culture, or at least the, the, the forward facing part of the fan culture has shifted so much in horror with the internet, like where it's gone from being, like you're saying, there was this sort of stereotype Fangoria magazine cover kid pasted all over his wall, listening to a certain type of music, you know, into a very certain type of culture. And now, like, if you look at people that write about horror online, like it's, it's all very learned people. And it's, it's very much flying in the face of whatever the eighties stereotype of a kid who was. Yeah. And they're all sweethearts and they're all supportive. I mean, some of my favorite like horror, like, and just kind of genre critics, or journalists, uh, one of the things that I think like Bloody Disgusting does this a lot, which I fucking love, is they they stopped. They I don't know if this is true for all of it, but I know like uh, John Squires who writes over there, like he a couple years ago said 
I'm going to stop being negative about things. Like I'll support things I like, you know, which for me also, that's a very, like, that's also was always very true in punk rock where it was like, we just love the bands we love. And if a band, we don't, I don't ever remember like hating a band. You know what I mean? Like, I don't ever remember being like, you're, I fucking hate you because of whatever, you know? I mean, I feel like this goes back to our beginning of this you're conversation. Forgetting that someone, but... Yeah, you're forgetting that someone broke Jello by Afra's leg over not liking something. So. Yeah, it's not me, but yes. <laughs> no, people, and that that is the thing, you know, and I, you know, spoiler alert, but like our movie, a lot of it is about toxic fandom and yeah. like, what is that? What does it mean? You know, and it's like part of the way I think for us, we were able to have that conversation in the movie is because we, we, we are fans, mm. you know, we are movie fans. We are music fans. Like I, I love movies and have really strong opinions about movies because I care deeply about them. You know, yeah. I'm not going to be, I'm never someone who's not going to go shit talk movies publicly because I know how hard they are to make and how much, you know, love and care goes into them. And if it's not your jam, that's fine. It's not your jam, but, it, but yeah, it, yeah. But some people take, you know, take it, take it a step too far. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, it, and like you're saying about not covering stuff you don't like, like I remember I think it's Siskel and Ebert, right. Or I think it's, I forget which horror film it is. Maybe it's like I spit on your grave or something, but there was some sort of like just complete, like just panning the film. Like why waste your time watching this film, which, you know, is a fair valid opinion. But if you want to hear about that type of movie, you want to hear about it from someone that actually has nuance about that genre. Yeah. It's that funny thing by, you know, I mean, me and Chad and Tyler, the guys I work with, we, we are, we don't pretend that we don't read reviews. Like I, I you know, some people like, I don't read reviews. It doesn't matter. I'm like, no, I fucking love reading reviews. I get, you know, and I basically like reading the shitty ones because the good ones are great. And I really appreciate that. I'm not grateful for them, but the bad ones are fun. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just for us to like kind of joke about, but it is because you can't take any of it. You can't take it too seriously in either direction. Like the, you can't let the good stuff go to your head and you can't let the bad stuff drag you down. Otherwise I don't think we'd ever be able to make anything. And you know, see what people don't like about it. You know, a lot of times there's like valid things and sometimes it is completely off the fucking, you're just, I don't even understand, like off the chain. You're just like, I don't get it. I don't understand why you even were reviewing this movie that you clearly hated before you even stepped into it. But, you know, that's all part of it. Like I am, mm-hmm. I, it is what it is and I totally get it. Um, but I remember on our first movie on VHS, we got a Roger Ebert review that was scathing. It was like, it was like, uh, basically some version of if I could have given this negative 10 stars, I would. It's not what he said, but it was in that world. But to me, as a movie fan, it's still one of my favorite reviews. I'm more proud of getting reviewed by Roger Ebert <laughs> than like, because, you know, I grew up watching him in Siskel and Ebert. Like, so to me, that was, I don't, I don't care if he liked it or not. I just care that he actually saw it or at least watched part of it and then stopped because he fucking hated it. But, uh, you know, I think it's just part of it. It's just all fun. It's like at the end of the day, we're fans. I I I have opinions on things. It's you know. And also, like if you know, this is at the end of the day, we're all making art, and art is about getting a reaction. And if you can get a guy who's seen exactly. a million movies to be like, "This was terrible," like <laughs> this amazing. Is <laughs> that's cool. Like, yeah. I'll take it, man. Yeah, exactly. That's that's like a victory. Uh, I think it's that thing you talk to anybody who makes anything. I think the the biggest fear is being in the middle, right? You want yeah. people to love it or hate it. You don't want anybody to be like, it's fine. Yeah. Well, and, that, and that's the thing is like, you look back on the history of the genre and anyone who's been on the show from like at the drive-in to yourselves, like everyone talks about how hated their band was like any band that went on to being a band that people were influenced by or talked about 
were were not really liked at their first show. It it seems right pretty much um, par for the course at this point. So yeah. it's you know because if you're fitting in, you're just going to fit in, and and no one's going to really remember it years later. Like it's almost like you need to be annoying or or not liked by people for people to need to catch up to you. And I think some of that comes from it's it, you know it, this is true for me at least. Like the I like stuff that is new in some way or new to me. So a lot of the bands that I love, 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 and have loved for decades, I didn't love at first. I mean, the two that jump out right away, I remember I didn't love Joy Division at first. I didn't love Jawbreaker at first. Mm. And it took me a minute to kind of get on that wavelength. And then it, then it, you know, I got really into them. Whereas something that is more palatable and you just hear it once and you go, great, I love it. It has to be, I feel like next level great. You know, it has to be like a green day, you know, yeah, where you just go, yeah. oh, you guys are just doing, you have perfected the art of this kind of music. And whereas if it's in between, it just becomes one of the bands that isn't Green Day or Blink or, you know, where they're, it's good and it's nothing against it, but it's not going to break the mold in any way. And I think that that happens a lot with the great, great bands who have really long careers is they, they are on some level breaking the mold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, and that's don't like it first. Yeah, exactly. And then like, look where the people that break the mold go, right? Like look where the stuff that isn't liked winds up and, yeah. and it's, uh, you know, like operation Ivy, you know, like that, once again, like a band that you know, arguably one of the most influential underground bands to ever come out of punk. I would yeah. argue even more than Nirvana. I know people take me up on that one, but I would argue more than Nirvana even. And I would, I think I'd agree with you because I also think that it's, I mean, that's, that's a really good debate, but I feel like if you're also talking like a per ears, mm-hmm. you know, because everybody heard Nirvana, not everybody's heard, you know, uh, Op Ivy, but everybody that has is deeply influenced by that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it definitely, like you're saying, like Jesse Michaels as a lyricist, you know, like I, that's not something I really stopped and thought about. Talib Kweli was on the podcast and talked about how influential he was on him as a lyricist. Really? Wow. Yeah. And so that's when I'm like, I got to go incredible. back and check this out. And he was, he was a brilliant, like, there's just something about oh, that band. The right? best. Yeah. It's like an alchemy yeah. there. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, I, I, yeah. I mean, I've said this a million times now, but like yeah, idols, like, and, and his lyrics specifically, I feel like that is when I really was, that was the first time I understood like, oh, it's not just music. It's music or it is, it is not to be belittling. It is just music. And what just music does can change the world. It's like, it's incredible how effective music and lyrics can be when they are both at the top of their, you know, game. And I feel like Op Ivy is a perfect example of that because it's doing everything we're talking about, right? It's new. We never heard that before, just sonically. The lyrics are incredible. They're, they're outward looking, but they're also inward looking. So it's about these bigger things and changing the world and making the world a better place. But it's also about the personal turmoils and all the shit you're going through, especially at that age. I, uh, yeah, I, I honestly think it's kind of unrivaled. Yeah, no, and I think that's what you're saying. Like, it, like, you know, I and I don't get me wrong. I love Nirvana, and not to be beat up on this one because it is a controversial opinion. But they were doing something that there was a, a history of before that. Like Operation Ivy was doing something, combining sounds that a lot of people hated. You know, like like hated yeah. what they were doing musically. They invented something new. Let's take two not beloved genres and shove them together. <laughs> shove them together and make something that really yeah. offends both camps. <laughs> and they also had a really strong, you know, and this is again very true. I think I would I would guess, especially in the Bay Area, if you asked anybody from my generation of the scene, they hip hop was just the biggest influences 
punk rock. Like mm-hmm. it was, it wasn't like it was, it was hip hop and punk rock were pretty equal. And they had a lot of that too. They had that thing, you know, before it got turned into other bands that did like the rap rock thing later, that was its own whatever. But there was that, like the way Jesse's lyrics and, and Tim Armstrong's lyrics had that kind of hip hop flow over their music. It was just so unique. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even like the aesthetic, the visual aesthetic, kind of having that vaguely graffiti feel to it or stencil yeah. art kind of feel to it too. Like it really yeah, just very handmade. Yeah. Really reflects something kind of different. And, and yeah, like things changed afterwards forever. Like there's nothing that's going to be the yeah. same after that musically from the scene. Changed my life. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a life-changing conversation, Matt. And anytime <laughs> you want to come back here, you know that this door is always open. This has been oh, a lot I would of love fun. To. Yeah, this has been great. It's been really good talking to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Matt, for coming on the show. And Matt will be back for a part two at some point in the near future because there's a lot more to get to. Uh, you know, like I should have asked him why they called it Radio Silence. I guarantee you there's a punk reference there. Uh, also, Matt was roommates with Lonely Island. <laughs> there's so much stuff to get to. This guy's had uh, quite the journey before making all these incredible films. So, uh, you know, congratulations to Matt and the rest of Radio Silence on the success of this film because they got a they got a sequel coming for this thing. So you know, hopefully it comes back before that comes out, but we'll, we'll get them for the sequel. All right. Coming up later on in a few short days. On this show, right here, someone I've always wanted to talk to. Another person with connections to the silver screen. From the bands, Circle Jerks. From Joe Strummer's solo records. From the movie, Repo Man and Walker and Straight to Hell. Xander Schloss is here, and this is a fantastic episode. What a journey this guy has had. And, uh, yeah, a really incredible person and... Very excited for you to hear this one. Uh, And that is that for the show this week. Or this time. (laughs) I'm still thinking I do one a week. Uh, Thank you for listening. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves. Because, you know, forget all that Nazi shit. Forget all these people that are coming at you, feeding you bullshit. The stuff we're talking about here, this isn't political. These aren't political issues. These are human rights issues. People deserve to be free and and not have to fear violence and just just oppression. You know, simply put, just oppression. People do not have to and should not have to live with that shit. So get involved in organizations that are doing positive things in this world. Um, to have conversations with people around you. And, and just try and try and affect change in whatever way you can. Small changes is better than no change, right? You know? Speaking about small changes, maybe try meditating. I didn't think that shit worked. And I tried it, and it works. It does. It really does. I, yeah, I wish I had discovered it way before. I wish I had believed in it way before. People have been believing this in, in meditation for, you know, centuries, centuries and centuries and centuries. People have been practicing this and... And preaching about the benefits of it. So I don't want to pretend like I'm discovering this thing. And I think prayer is probably an extension of meditation too. You know, when, anyway, try it. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't for you. Who knows? Uh, Sign your organ donor cards. Because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them anymore. 
So sign those organ donor cards. Also, go out there and make your own culture. I took this from Tony Erba, who is sadly suffering a, a, a health issue right now. And there's a GoFundMe. Um, Chris and I are going to be doing a, a, a special episode about Tony. It'll be popping up over this weekend, too. Um, spoiler on that. It was, uh, But it hopefully it'll be popping up any day now in the feed. Yeah, so shout out to Tony. Get well soon. Tony Erba, we love you. And go there and make your own culture, like Tony said. You know, start a band, start a fanzine, start a record label. Because you can do it. We, You can do it. It's better than not doing it. Maybe don't start a record label right now. It's really hard to get records made. Maybe start a CD label. Yeah, doesn't have the same ring to it. And that is that. Thank you for listening, everyone. Stay safe.